So, you want to save the planet. In just a matter of months, more than 100 world leaders will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26. There, they will make some of the biggest decisions yet on how to tackle climate change and set out plans that will change the way we all live our lives forever. But that's the big picture. What can we do to help now? I'm Lewis Mickey. And I'm Natalie Crawford Goodwin. And this is So You Want to Save the Planet. The Planet and the Pandemic. Well, I know everyone is sick of hearing the word pandemic by now, but we need to talk about what COVID and the lockdowns have shown us about the environment. Do we have to? We we really, really have to. I'm sorry. Okay, well, we all use the car a lot less and many of us have started or still are home working. So there are a lot less vehicles on the road and that must have had an impact on the climate. But it's not just positive effects either. The massive use of PPE and masks Mm. have been a challenge. And whilst we stop using the car as much, we're starting to bounce back stronger on that. I'd imagine there's going to be a lot to pack into this episode. So why don't we just cut to the chase and get to the experts? Yeah, so let's actually start with the carbon emissions and look how those changed through lockdowns. Gavin Thompson from Friends of the Earth Scotland has been keeping track of this throughout the pandemic and he's going to tell us a bit more. The pandemic changed everything so much and so quickly. That's the kind of guiding principle. That's what we should understand. So from that point in March where Boris Johnson announced the lockdown, traffic disappeared off the roads quite quickly and to very, very low numbers in that first lockdown period of 2020, end of March, April, May, very low traffic levels. So the greenhouse gas emissions for Scotland, we don't find out for a while, like we won't find out in detail what they were for 2020 until next year, I think. But we know just from traffic numbers and air pollution, which is measured in real time and at source, in other words, beside the streets, there was a big drop in traffic and therefore improvement in air quality. That was really short-lived. That's just for the first couple of months of that lockdown. Now, from about the end of May onwards, we can see the air pollution start to rise again. We can see the traffic numbers start to rise. And that sort of continued by the end of 2020. Obviously, we've been in and out of different kinds of lockdown by then. By the end of 2020, Traffic levels were not that different from the end of 2019, a normal year, if you can have normal. So then I suppose, you, you know, you're mentioning there about how it's gone back up. Some people might just automatically assume, well, you know, a lot of people are working from home now and maybe there'll be a middle ground between the two. But are we actually seeing it just go back to really what we would consider pre-pandemic? Yeah, that is really interesting where so many people are still working from home. So that's two journeys, at least, that people aren't making now. Obviously, a lot of people who are working from home would have made journeys walking and cycling, public transport. A lot of those people would have driven fossil fuel cars as well. But what we see is that the pollution levels certainly don't really look like a lot of people are still staying at home. Some vehicles pollute more than others. Some vehicles burn more fossil fuel, like emit more greenhouse gases. But also, I think there's something else interesting in the changes to the way we live. Are more of us getting deliveries? And so are the delivery vans 
emitting more than they would have otherwise, let's say going back to 2019. And this summer in particular, more of us appear to have journeyed around the UK. So I think in rural areas, particularly uh, sites of natural beauty and things like that, we might see more traffic, more pollution levels and, you know, corresponding emissions. Transport's the biggest source of emissions in Scotland, it's about 40%. Not much has happened to reduce that in 30 odd years, even though we've had huge interventions, huge reductions in emissions in other sectors like energy production. So that means we need to do a lot in our transport system in quite a short space of time. And that needs to begin with reducing the dominance of the private car. But there are some people and some journeys for whom there's no easy alternative to a private car, right? People who live in very remote rural areas, some people with disabilities, there's no easy solution or alternative to a private car. But for everyone else, for every other journey, there should be, in particular, short journeys in urban areas. One mile, two mile, if you live in a city, I think it should be quite difficult for you to use a car unless you're exempt, unless you maybe a blue badge holder or something like that. But also there should be loads of really pleasant, easy alternatives to the car for those kinds of short journeys in urban areas, big towns and cities. And I think we are starting to see some of those measures in our cities. Um, and that's essential to beginning to start to reduce the emissions from traffic. It also has a load of other benefits, cleaner air, improving the kind of feel of our cities, making more attractive to tourists and businesses. So you want to save the planet? That is really quite interesting. And I don't know about you, Lewis, but certainly through the lockdowns, I know that getting outside and going for walks, appreciating the natural environment, that, you know, that really got me and I'm sure a lot of other people through. But I've found that actually that might have had a negative impact on some of those areas as well, as we're all being encouraged to spend more time outside. The impact that this is having on beauty spots with littering and all that kind of stuff. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah, and being up here in the north of Scotland, working as a journalist, this is an issue I've seen quite a lot, actually. You know, in the last year and a half, we've heard about litter. We've heard about people parking in all sorts of crazy places Mm -hmm. so they can go Mm -hmm. for a walk in the countryside, which is meant to be secluded. That's why you like those spots. And then they're not very secluded at all. So let's actually focus on that litter part of this for a minute, though. Yeah, and littering is like, it's a really universal issue because it was bad before everywhere, but I swear it has gotten worse through the pandemic. And you aren't the only one, actually. I went on a a litter pick myself recently with a guy called Mike Scotland. He's one of my favourite people to interview, actually. He's just a really charismatic guy. I love having a chat with him, and I'm sure all of our listeners will love him too. He actually started his group, it's called Community Cleanup, with his spare time in the first lockdown. What a great way to actually spend your your time, actually. And they've made a real difference here in Aberdeen. But he's been finding lots of face masks being dumped. Mm. And he's also seeming to find that a lot of people are just more hesitant to put their litter in a bin now. You know, whether that be because of they didn't want to go and touch a bin, because, of course, who knows who might have touched that. Or also just people who would pick up other people's litter. They certainly don't want to do that anymore. You don't want to pick up someone else's old crisp packet after what we went through. of course. So let's hear from a proper expert on this. Anybody that's been out and about pre-pandemic to post-pandemic or certainly during it, it's everywhere. You know, I think before you'd be looking at 
you know, your, your normal cans of juice, your sweetie wrappers, your crisp packets, we're now, you know, although a lot of people think this the masks are the solution, they're, they're mainly heavy pollution. And, you know, you're not just finding them on the, the streets, you're finding them in the, the farm areas and the drains. They're popping up everywhere. People that have maybe had that reset during the pandemic to realise that they maybe have a shift in perspective. They've seen the world in a different element that they want to look after it more. Or you've maybe got it from the people that are heavily in the the hygiene side of things. And because of the fear that surrounded COVID, they might be a little bit scared to pick up the litter. The biggest impact on the, the environment is the things that you don't necessarily see. The fly tipping, the I'm going to throw this out the window and don't really care where it goes. You know, one day you might see all the litter, the next day it disappears, but where does it actually go? What we're looking at just now is, is things that you'll only see if you go looking for it. You're coming into an area which is a forestry area, you're looking at the trees from the external source, but when you actually walk into it, you know, you're looking at old wire in there, an actual bin that's been thrown behind a wall, you know, you've got your drinks cans there, which are recyclable goods. Not only does it not get binned, but it's not getting reutilised again. That'll sit there for hundreds of years until it becomes somebody else's problem. See, when you have an area like this, so we're looking at you know bins or pallets or all that sort of thing, do you think that actually then makes it worse? Because as soon as an area starts to become a bit of a dumping ground, it just encourages people that, oh, but that's already happening, I may as well just dump things there. Yeah, it becomes like a litter magnet, you know, because if, if somebody was to see this area, it's acceptable now until this is overflowing onto the car park and then it's one of the maybe surrounding area businesses that see it. Who really cares? For starters, and I'm going to sink into it, there's like grass cuttings that are piled up. Then there's these, just your standard household black bin that you put outside. I mean, it's full of black bin bags and, and water. And there's a couple of canisters of gas, I think, from camping. There's signage, old piping, and then lots of kind of business type stuff as well. So you've got like your pallets, you've got roofing as well so this is all hidden behind just a couple garages in between the garages and a business and then just trees kind of covering over it it's a little bit like just people forget that it's there but this will slowly just grow out and grow out and it's so many things that could be recycled as well lots of wood and tin and things like that okay so what we've got here we've got one bit of litter which is on the surface okay so one bit on the top just in front of the leaves okay however since i've pulled that you can actually see underneath it's it's actually pulled up some of the land beneath it and if we start to strip this back you then find another layer so kind of like when you're looking at rock formations and you see that you know decades upon centuries upon millennia that's there it's exact same with litter so what we've got here is we've had somebody that's thrown a bottle yeah i'm not entirely sure how old this bottle is and then we've had the weather do its thing nature take its course so it disappears but does it litter never never really disappears but then more litter has been put on top what i found essentially with with lockdown is you go out and you, you do your litter picks then you find the layers of that is done you know 50 60 70 years ago and that's where the worry really is it's not the now, but it's the past that is affecting the now that is the, the main issue. And it doesn't just affect the now, it dictates the future. Our good friend, Golden Wonders, I found one from 1963. I always find it interesting when you look through the different content on the, the crisp packages themselves, because you'll find that the brand, the flavor, something nice about the crisps, maybe the content, 
but then there'll be an absolute minute little symbol in one of the bottom corners of the crisp packet with a put it in the bin sign. That's just a tick box for me because, you know, if a brand's good, it speaks for itself, you know, but the brand seems to be the biggest name. You know, everybody knows what the, the logos and the symbols are for loads of different things, but what is their passion really towards? To look after the environment or is it just to tick boxes? There's a lot of boxes getting ticked, but not enough action getting done. So, you want to save the planet? What I found really interesting about that is you spoke with Mike quite a lot about people's actual mindsets and attitudes. And I think that's such a big part of it when it comes to COVID, but also the climate and saving the planet. They both overlap quite a lot. Yeah, they really do. And let's look on the brighter side of this for a minute as well. We're not going to be completely negative all episode. And that's what makes it a little bit different from the COVID focus, I guess. We can be a bit more positive. Mm -hmm. Some people genuinely have become more climate friendly during this pandemic, actually. At least that's what I've found. Yeah, obviously, and like people aren't going on holiday quite so much, so there's going to be less planes in the sky. And there's a lot of people who are also really keen to keep working from home. They've tried it, they enjoyed it, particularly the, you know, the time that you save on a commute. So there's going to be less planes in the sky and less cars on the road as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, and those seem to be quite widespread themes. Whether that lasts, we'll see. But Professor Claire Wallace from the University of Aberdeen, who's an expert in sociology, has been telling me she really does think that a lot of people have made that shift in thinking. People obviously have been forced to stay at home and work from home where possible, or they've been furloughed and haven't been working at all. That has changed quite radically the way in which people see work. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence now that people don't want to go back to the old forms of working. So for some people, they've really missed, you know, having the interaction with other people at work. But many other people have found new ways of working basically from home. So they've managed to set up a working environment that works for them. Some people don't want to go back to the office in quite the same way that they did in the past you know talking about office workers and other people would like to work a sort of hybrid model so the hybrid model will be working from home for a certain number of days or hours and, and working in the office or in the workplace and during the rest of the time through the um, covid pandemic we've just learned new skills so we've learned new ways of organizing our time we've learned new ways of, of uh, managing technology so we've, we've just learned to manage that and to cope with that and so I, I think for at least for professional workers and white collar workers that's been the experience but i think it's been much harder for people who have small children and don't have for example a space in their house that they can use as an office and that's particularly, I think, impacted women. So again, there's quite a lot of evidence that women's careers have been affected by the fact that they're primarily responsible for childcare. I know men do more than they perhaps did in the past, but it's still the case that women are primarily responsible for childcare. And that has impacted their career prospects and their working prospects as well. And just in terms of that desire for people to maybe want to work at home more, do you get the feeling that is a permanent thing as well, that that is something that will last and it maybe it would mean a slower transition? I think that that's a lasting impact. I mean, people have learned, you know, not to waste a lot of time and commuting. This saves a lot of time in some ways. And it's not necessarily the case that people are less efficient. They're sometimes more efficient working at home. I mean, that's been the case with studies that have been done of teleworking since a long time, that the people who work from home 
are quite often more efficient than the people who don't work from home, but they do miss out on the office interactions and sometimes miss out on promotion prospects and so on because they're not there, you know, talking to the right people. (laughs) What about the actual businesses as well? Is there a bigger desire from them to try and keep people home working? Yeah, well, it depends on the business, doesn't it? I mean, if you're working, if you're running a a restaurant or a supermarket, you can't really have people working from home. It's been disastrous for a lot of the hospitality industries. We're doing this work on cultural tourism, and it's clear that for the tourist industry, it's been a disaster because for the businesses, they've had to furlough their staff. They haven't been able to get the staff back again, necessarily. They have to keep closing whenever someone gets um, pinged with having COVID. So it's a big hit for them. But I think for other businesses, it's not necessarily the case. For example, many businesses have found that, you know, they don't need the big overheads of having city centre accommodation for offices if people can work from home part or all of the time. So I think that that's been a way in which businesses themselves have reoriented themselves. I don't think it'll ever go back to quite how it was in the past. I think that this more dispersed model of working is going to be much more normal in the future. So whether we like it or not, I think some people like it more than others. So for some people, it works you know if you've got an office at home you've got a comfortable working environment versus if you're surrounded by screaming kids I don't think that's necessarily the most restful way to work I think it, it does have an impact on the environmental issues doesn't it so if people are not commuting all the time and not using city centre accommodation and working from home that actually has a, a quite a positive environmental impact and I think everybody started to appreciate the environment much more under COVID than perhaps we had in the past because people were forced to just go for walks around their local area. So they became much more observant about the environment. Speaking personally, for example, I used to spend at least twice a month, I would go somewhere on an airplane. And I've been anywhere on an airplane and it's been okay. You know, instead of going on an airplane to some place along with, I don't know, 50 other academics and discussing something and it taking three days, it now takes half a day and it's all done electronically. And that's surely much better for the environment So I think now we can really weigh up and say, okay, is this really important thing to do or is it something we can do online? Because we know that we can do it online now and it's quite possible and in some ways more efficient. I don't think the airline industry will ever go back to what it was before. So you want to save the planet? Right. Before we go, I want to talk about oil and gas and renewables. And of course you do, at, because you're in Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, look, it's ingrained into me being up here in Aberdeen, which also really has no context to this. But if things that are ingrained into you also because of oil and gas is that everyone reverse parks. That is the rule if you're in a car park for an oil and gas company. I would not be able to go and work in the oil and gas industry then because I cannot reverse park. I've just gone from a Twingo to a big Fiat 500X and there's not a chance I'm going to be able to reverse park that either. So there'll be no clear change to oil and gas for me that's probably for the best seeing as (laughs) all of this transition is going on to be honest but let's actually look at the link between how we get our energy and our fuels and then how the pandemic has reshaped that and how we might think about it as well I'm going to end up seeing this every single episode, Lewis, but some of the interviews that we have had today have been real eye-openers everything links back to the pandemic and the same goes for the climate it's just everything comes round in one big circle absolutely and i'm actually going to let professor paul galou think i got that pronunciation right that i'm hoping well i really take done. pride in that yeah i'm going to let him explain a little bit more on this he's a real expert when it comes to both oil and gas but also the renewable sector as well and he's going to talk us through the impact of the pandemic on the sector 
the whole COVID-19 situation is probably one of the first global crises we had to deal with. And actually the implications have been quite far-ranging because I think the learning we find on how you deal with a crisis and how it impacts on climate emergency is very similar. First time the world has a common issue to deal with. First time we need a worldwide response. First time we need to kind of have collaboration at a level we have never seen before. So I think some of the lessons we've learned are completely transferable. The other thing what we learned, of course, is these are not easy things to fix, and we need a level of collaboration that sometimes we find difficult to do around the world. The responses to the pandemic has been so different in different parts of the world. With COP, the aim is going to be to all agree to a response to the climate that is collaborative. So, you know, is that going to be quite a challenge? Yeah, and again, I think what we learned from COVID-19, COVID-19, we have to fix it now. The climate crisis is actually not dissimilar. We see the fires, we see the flooding, we see the storms. We are the first generation who see the impact of climate change. We're probably also the last generation who actually can do something about it to fix it. We have to deal with the problem as it is. And I think the energy transition and the lifestyle changes and everything we do are fundamental part. And that's not something we can leave to other people. And you mentioned the speed of it there. We've seen with the lockdowns and things like that, how one quickly governments can work, but then also how quickly a community can work to change these things. Does that show that with also with the climate emergency, it is possible to do that and there aren't excuses? Think about the climate emergency. The destination is really, really clear. If we want a sustainable planet we can all live on, we need to get to net zero. We need to do it fast. The starting point is different. So this is about the journey of how we get there in the smartest and best way. And what works in one place might be different than what works in other places. I hope we can find a way to use this as a massive wake-up call to start thinking about changing and impacting our life. You look at the United Kingdom, which is a lovely microcosm. So the United Kingdom is roughly 1% of the world population. We do roughly 1% of the oil and gas production in the world. And we have just over 1% of the global emissions. So it's a microcosm what plays out. Even how we live here, just on the 14 million vehicles on the road here, most of them use diesel or petrol. Most of our homes, most of our offices are heated by gas. This is the system we need to change. We need to find a way to decarbonize our lives, decarbonize how we can operate. As we speak, we're seeing so many conversations on when we stop oil and gas drilling and how it happens. I mean, how do you think that has to be considered as we go forward? I completely understand the kind of sentiment around carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. And absolutely, the future world, we're all working on destinations net zero. It's a journey of how we find to do it. We cannot certainly switch off. At the moment, we actually consume more oil and gas than we produce, and the rest we import. So we need to be very mindful. Of course, we want to reduce the consumption, but until we have it in place, we still will need, to some degree, oil and gas. Now, it is better in our view, to make sure we produce it here at the lowest carbon footprint than stopping activity now, but then end up importing it, often with a higher carbon footprint from places where there's less regulation around the, uh, the whole uh, emission side. So, you want to save the planet? Okay, Natalie, you'll be glad to know 
for the rest of this podcast, or maybe most of it, <laughs> we don't have to talk about the pandemic anymore. Woo-hoo! I'm probably lying there. There probably is a couple of interviews I've done where it's been mentioned because who can have a conversation <laughs> without mentioning I know, COVID? I know, just like we say, where we're saying, you know, it just it is so, so far reaching now, but so is climate change and arguably just as important. And we kind of talked in a little bit there about people aren't going abroad for their holidays so much anymore. But just like the cars have bounced back, that's probably going to bounce back as well. You know, just wait until next summer, fingers crossed, and we'll probably see that as well. So that's where next week is going to be uh, quite an interesting one, isn't it? It is. So I am going to be looking at the impact of our abroad holidays on climate change, but not just abroad holidays. Would you believe that staycations or domestic tourism, as the experts call it, is also having an impact on our climate? So that's what we're looking at in episode four of So You Want to Save the Planet. The planet and the pandemic.